Hi, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's broadcast. I'm Dr. Brad Reed. Today is Thursday, November 10th, 2022. Tonight's format, if you might be new to the podcast or to the broadcast, is a format where I'll, I will take any live questions or topics brought up by our, our live audience. So if you have any of those, you can submit those at any time. You can always submit questions or, or topics or requests or feedback to webinar at evoketherapy.com. You can do that in between sessions and I'll answer them at the next available question and answer. This is also a format for those of, for those Evoke families uh, and alumni where you can actually share this link, the live link with your family members. So if they want to join us and ask questions, they can get a feel for what we do at Evoke here. You can always ask questions for and on behalf of them. You can ask a question that you've been asked by them and, and, and sort of compare my answer to your answer to give you some perspective. Before I get into my first pre-submitted question, I just want to share, we're very excited. I did my first Conscious Parenting All Day Workshop last Friday, and by all accounts, it was a smashing success. So immediately after I finished, we'd already filled up a second one, but immediately after I finished, I, I emailed the team and said, let's put another one on the calendar. So we've opened up a, a new section of our Conscious Parenting Workshop. Uh, that will be February 24th from 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Mountain Time with a lunch break. This is not just a lecture, you'll all be live, but it's also interactive, even more than these broadcasts where I can respond to you in real time and, and talk to you as if I was your therapist for the hour or, or, or the question. So I'll give you a feel of what it likes to do therapy together. So it's a Zoom conference. It's gonna be limited to 24 participants so that you can have uh, a lot of participation and a lot of interaction and, and have your fair share of the stage. So if, you, if you're interested in our Conscious Parenting Workshop, which will fill up, we're sure, very quickly because we had several people on the waiting list after the first two sections were full, email intensives at evoketherapy.com or call our toll-free number at 866-411-6600. So with that, let's get into any pre-submitted questions. Here's the first question that was sent in. Somebody writes, I've been in therapy for over 25 years, and although I have made progress, I feel blind to what a secure attachment feels and looks like. I think my therapist is pro providing that to me, but how would I know? It is so subtle and nuanced. In fact, I wanted to share with you a slide, uh, a quote that I had shared from uh, uh, my social media account this week to, to talk about it, but it is a very difficult thing to describe because it's a feeling inside. Essentially, it's a feeling of being okay. Let me read the quote first, and then I'll say more about that. I wrote, children learn who they are by how, how we feel about them, not from what we say to them. This is why parents who hope to foster a secure attachment must work out their feelings and thoughts with a therapist so these feelings don't leak into the child. So if a, if a parent is welcoming and safe and boundaried. I always have to remind folks it's, it's also a boundaried parent. A non-boundaried parent can't really provide you with a secure attachment. That's just being in the same house, right? That's just somebody that's there. A boundaried parent has their own sense of self. But, but with that foundation, they're able to respond, to be curious about your internal world, to really respond to you with curiosity and compassion and non-judgment. So what happens to the individual when they're in the presence of a caregiver that, that presents that way, that responds to them with those characteristics, the child's nervous system is able to regulate, co-regulate with the parent. And over time, that, that calm, regulated nervous system is a base or a foundation that I am okay. So that in the face of trauma and stress, the child can, can know at a core level or the adult can know at a core level that they're okay. If we don't experience a secure attachment as children, or I would more properly say to the extent that the attachment we had, had in childhood was less than perfectly secure, and that really covers all of us because nobody has a perfect parent and a perfect attachment, then we can develop what, what psychologists refer to as an earned attachment. We can have that experience later in life Reparative experiences like psychotherapy, like a 12-step support group, or a really close mentor, or, or somebody that you look up to, some friend even. It's possible to acquire a little bit of that. But really, the secure attachment is 
having a sense that you're okay. And that means that you, you to, to an extent, have gone beyond being good, beyond, gone beyond being right, needing to prove yourself, needing to kind of feed your ego and prove that you're a good person. You just know it. In fact, you know it so well that when somebody gets upset with you in your life, like a child or a spouse, you're able to hear them, to see them, to be empathic, to not defend yourself. Really, folks, it's about the, the, the kind of indicator about a secure attachment is how defensive you are. My wife and I were just talking recently about this idea, and I, I'm not overstating this when I say, in my life, it's sometimes on a weekly basis, but at least a monthly basis, I, I feel like I, I take one step lower into the basement of my psyche and soul and realize how imperfect I am. Just this week, I shared it on the podcast on Monday after making a a mistake with my daughter and then defending myself in my own head. After she said, you know, you do it all the time. I apologize for the behavior. And then she said, yeah, but you do it all the time. And I wanted to defend myself because I didn't want to be that person. But I knew the skill. I knew to keep quiet. And I said, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll keep working on it. But then I spent a few minutes trying to justify in my head about how I wasn't wrong. That's not a secure attachment. That's an ego thing. And after defending myself and going through that that rebuttal that we often go through in, in our brains, I thought to myself, you're being ridiculous. She's right. You do do it all the time. And then I confessed this to my, my wife so that somebody would be a witness to the realization. But it's that realization over and over again that, I'm flawed. I'm imperfect. I I hurt the people that I care about. I'm wounded. I don't communicate well. I lose insight. I become reactive and triggered. I become defensive, right? So the secure attachment, the result of the secure attachment is I can look at my fallible self. I've made peace with my horrible, rotten self. I don't need to prove to the world that I'm good or worthy or or, or in need of admiration or love or respect, I'm okay. So that's the result of a secure or an earned attachment. Earned attachment, of course, referring to it happening later in life, typically in psychotherapy. That's the result of it. So if you want to know what your progress looks like in psychotherapy and on your journey, it can be measured maybe most simply by how much do you know that you're dented and bruised and imperfect and fallible? And I've said this recently. This is a new realization of mine also. I have been very good over the past several years at kind of globally, theoretically, accepting that I'm imperfect, accepting that I'm a horrible, rotten self, learning that I'm not good, I'm, I'm good and bad, and all, all of it in between. I'm pretty good at that. Some people can't even get that far, so that is some sort of accomplishment. But now what I realize is is it gets tested in very simple conversations with family members, friends, and employees, coworkers, clients even. So what that means is if you get mad at me, if you get angry with me, if you express hurt or sadness or grief around something that I've done and I defend myself, I'm compromised. And that might be that I'm compromised at, at, a, at a core level, right? That I haven't gotten that far. Or it might just be that I'm compromised because I'm at my wit's end for the day. I'm, I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm overworked. I'm overstressed. There's something going on else in my life that's causing me to, to, to get into that fight or flight. But essentially, the task is in the moment is being present in the relationship allowing the person to be themselves and having the wherewithal to hear and to see them compassionately and openly. And, and this is important because this is also part of it. And, and when I know that I can't be there for you, if I can't listen to my daughter tell me that I always screw up or if I can't listen to my wife saying you're being defensive or whatever the criticism or, or the feeling statement is, if I can't do that, somebody with a secure attachment will say, I have to step aside and take a time out. I need a break. 
I'm overwhelmed. I'm feeling insecure or triggered. I'm going to withdraw from this conversation for a moment, for, for an evening, for even a day. I'm going to retreat, as we say, to my practice. Maybe that's just taking a walk. Maybe it's meditation. Maybe it's prayer. For me, it's, it's oftentimes just doing something gluttonous like watching a television show that I like. It's just allowing my nervous system to reset. So having a secure attachment doesn't mean that I can tolerate everything all the time anywhere. It just means that I can tolerate a lot and a lot more. And when I can't, I again have enough confidence to own my limitation that's showing up in this moment and step aside until I'm ready to hear it again. We don't live in the worlds of shoulds, of goods and bads, of rights and wrong when we have a secure attachment. We live in the world of this is who I am. This is what I'm feeling. A client was recently saying to me that she had a discussion with her daughter. And her daughter was upset about something. And she wanted to tell her daughter, you shouldn't feel that way. You shouldn't be angry at me. I've already apologized was part of the argument. And I shared with her, isn't that the way that it feels, right? We, we, we grow up being told what we should and shouldn't feel, and so we don't know ourselves. We grow up in homes, as I say in, in The Audacity to Be You, we're cooked in the soup of right and wrong, so the task in our families often growing up is who's right and who's wrong, not who's, who feels what they feel. So a secure attachment is that you're okay with yourself. And it's a continuum, so nobody's perfect. But a secure attachment is you're okay with your horrible, rotten, selfish, stingy, ignorant, biased, limited, imperfect self. And that's not all that you are. You're also beautiful and generous and creative and intelligent and gifted and and, and wonderful. But a secure attachment is you can be all of it. That's the result of a secure attachment. The cause of a secure attachment is having a capable person in your life, present in your life over some period of time. In childhood, it's a a critical period. If it doesn't happen in childhood, it can take many years in therapy to develop it and make significant progress. But the cause is having that that, that big person, that other person, that that, that authority figure, that parent, that therapist, who sees us non-judgmentally. So when you go to your therapist and you, you, you tell a story, they don't judge you. They're just curious and empathic and interested in what's going on for you. They're not focused on changing your behavior or fixing you or you getting it right. They're focused on seeing you, on understanding you. And when we get seen and heard, our nervous system relaxes and we're able to, to accept things without defense. That's the cause and the outcome of a secure attachment. The cause is a stable self present in our life who sees us, who's empathic, who doesn't react with fear and anxiety and anger and disappointment and even an earnestness that will get it or get better because all of those feelings get interpreted by us on an unconscious level as something's wrong with me, you see? That's the human condition. We are so connected, so relational as creatures that other people's feelings affect how we think about ourselves. So the question is, how do you know you have a secure attachment? And the simplest answer would be, how willing are you to to look at yourself both on a global theoretical level and your faults and your flaws and your limitations? And then how well, maybe where the rubber hits the road, how well are you to hear other people's anger and sadness and frustration and disappointment in you and have it not compromise you? Still be okay. Still be present with them. But not be triggered into fight or flight where you have to defend yourself or counterattack them. Defensiveness is the measure, if you will, of mental health and integration and wholeness. And, and carrying around a secure attachment inside of you. Great question. Wonderful question. Somebody writes, I'm trying so hard to be less anxious as I parent my 14-year-old teenage daughter. Her mood still affects me. 
Her highs and lows trigger me, and I often find my mood mirroring hers help. That's a human experience. It's probably not accidental that teenagers happen in our lives about the same time we're in midlife, right? And so what the, the call or the invitation is, is to take those feelings elsewhere. And I'm not just talking about going to therapy. Going to therapy is the, 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 the way that I do it. it it's, a, it's a great vehicle to work on this. But take feelings to other people that you trust, that are, that are trustworthy. Your therapist can be one. Your sponsor can be one. Your spouse can be one. Your friend, your good friend that you trust that doesn't give you advice or simple pat answers can be one. But take your emotions and be responsible for them. See, if I'm not responsible for my emotions, then I'll just leak them onto the child and I will imply that they'll have to take care of me. And it's usually very subtle and very unconscious, right? It can happen around the dinner table. It can happen with a glance or a look or a sigh. So the, the good news is this. You don't have to stop being triggered. You don't have to stop feeling those feelings. Those are who you are, the human condition. The decision that you make is to create a world where you have other sources of support and you're not relying on the daughter to regulate your nervous system. And 14-year-olds are, are wired to dysregulate, right? They're in a, in, in a radical stage of growth and identity and making choices and making mistakes. They're going through puberty. And so mood disorders, mood shifts are common during that phase. They're going through, in often cases, a significant amount of depression. A lot of adolescents, especially with the stress in the world today, are going through depression. Now, it always doesn't look, it doesn't always look sad it can look angry and aggressive. It can look snotty and bratty and spoiled and entitled. That's what depression looks like in teenagers. So the, the, the bad news is that's who you are. That's the bad news, right? The bad news is you're, you're dysregulated around your daughter. She's able to access it. She's able to kind of, you know, you've designed her. We design our children to know our buttons. It's just what human beings do. They know what works. If criticizing you being fair or not fair doesn't affect you, they will stop doing it, I promise you. But if criticizing you saying you don't care about me or you never listen to me, if that's a trigger because you haven't sorted out some of your own childhood wounding, healed that, then you're going to be held hostage by that. If anger dysregulates you because you haven't worked through, through the anger in your own family of origin, then they're going to be angry and use that anger. It's all unconscious. I don't give them credit for, for consciously manipulating. It's automatic. The same way that a dog knows its owner. When we took our Rottweiler, my very favorite puppy, to the trainer many, many years ago, the name of the program was Who's Training Who, by the way, which was a friendly, playful insult right, right in the door. And we left our, our, our Rottweiler, Coda, with him for, for a couple of days. And then we were to come back and then we were going to go through some, some training sessions. So we walk in after a couple of days of dropping off Coda, this, this lovable goofball of a Rottweiler who was, would never listen to us, which I thought was all about his personality, right? And there was a small square, um, small square taped in the middle of the floor in the pet store that they had at this training facility, a regular size pet store, pretty large pet store. And, and, the, the, the teacher came over and said, peek through the door, look through the glass. And I see this big husky Rottweiler sitting in the middle of a store with people walking all around him, not moving at all, not, not tied up, not leashed, but just sitting in the middle of the floor. And I, I said, I don't know if that's Coda. That doesn't, that does not seem like our dog from the behavior. And of course he assured us it was our dog. And they said, let's go see him. And the minute I walked through the door, what did Coda do? Coda got up off the square and walked right over towards me. And I learned that they know what works. They read you. It's unconscious. They know the dance. So your job becomes developing your own sense of self, work out your own wounding, your own family of origin background, your own unique emotional history, making sense of it, and make that your project. And you won't make 
one big change. It will be small steps. The bad news about developing a secure or an earned attachment, folks, the bad news is it takes years. Everybody in, in my work, when I, when I write, when I, when I talk, they want hacks. They want six steps, five steps. It makes sense. That would be nice. It's not how it works. This takes a long time. Even the movement with psychedelics. I, I really do think psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy can make a huge impact and can heal. But I, I've known plenty of people who have done that. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Psychedelics do a, a great job of pulling unconscious information to, to the consciousness, of, of compromising, if you will, the ego, just enough for that material to come up. But then you have to work on it. And not just for a month or two, but for a long time, in my experience, the rest of your life. But that's where the hope and the joy is. Not that you can arrive, but that you know the direction that you're headed. So that's a long answer to a simple question, but it's because the process is lifelong and complex. But the joy is, you know the project, and the project is you, not your child. And yet, the more you work on your project, the better you are to help your child. Somebody says, in the last webinar, you told a story that really hit home. It was when you were apologizing to your daughter and she said, you do it all the time. I have been struggling with my daughter. She recently had been diagnosed with a mood disorder and I've been doing my best to support her. But some days I just fall short and become reactive, judgmental and sarcastic when her anger is turned on me. I usually catch myself and apologize. I've done so much work over the last three years. However, it never feels enough because she says, you'll just do it again or I don't believe you. When, when, she, when will she see it? Is it wrong to want her to acknowledge how much I've changed? I've kind of been speaking about this, this question already, but I, I, it gives me a launching point to talk about it more. First of all, part of the, the, the secure attachment that I was just describing, the earned attachment, the work, the work, your work, will result in you not needing her to see it. She can still sense that there's a need that you have that she sees it, and that's still the ego. You're still in trying to be good. Everybody can sense this. This next thing I'm about to say, you can, you can feel it. When we let go, when we surrender, when we accept our horrible, rotten self, we, we, we make our apologies, and we're not attached to how they receive them. And just like my daughter, your daughter is probably right. You probably still do always do it. But again, going back to it, there's nothing to be defensive about, right? When you've worked out your work, there's nothing to be defensive about. Even if you made progress, she still has the right to, to be angry, to, to cast you as the villain in her story. That's the great gift. See, if we can own our project, I, I say this all the time. If the task is to become perfect or great or amazing, our children are doomed. So luckily, that's not the task. But if the task is to become human, to be able to over and over again apologize and go back to it was my bad, my mistake, then the child realizes it's not all them. They have this imperfect parent that they're working with. So yes, just like I was describing, the defense of being good, of making progress, of getting better is still the problem. So you can still hear it in your question. You can still hear it in my story with my daughter. If you need to be seen as making improvement, you're still in it. And ironically, when you let go of what she thinks or feels, then she will feel it. It's a tricky, tricky thing. It's a paradox. So for her to acknowledge or change it is your need, not her need. She needs to be angry with you. Now, again, I go back to this all the time. You're allowed to have boundaries. When I snapped at my daughter the other day, that was my mistake. That's the thing I do. And what I realized was I don't want to be a doormat, 
So next time she snaps at me, and instead of snapping back like we're both teenagers fighting, I can pause, take a breath, and say I'm not okay being talked to that way. And then I can drive away. Instead of fighting with her like we're both kids, which in that moment we're fighting, I am acting like a kid with her. But yeah, you're right in sync. And it takes forever, and you're never going to be perfect. And so you're going to have to apologize that's why at the end of the audacity of you, I say, learn to, to be okay with being wrong. Understand your mental health issues, your, your darkness, and remain on speaking terms with it because it will come up. Get over this idea that, folks, get over this idea that some epiphany, some self-help book, some podcast is going to cure it all. And learn to surrender and embrace that you'll be a work in progress, progress till the day you die. And if you think or imagine or fantasize that you can arrive, or even worse, that you have arrived, be very, very worried about that thought. You know, that thought is death. That thought is the defense coming back up again. And, and I say this all the time. Because it's he's such a simple, universal symbol. If you go and listen to the Dalai Lama speak, he will say over and over again in every talk about anything, what a buffoon he is. And he will laugh at himself and it will feel effortless to him. Because when you become enlightened, that's what you realize is that you're a buffoon. And you don't do it from a place of this is what people always confuse when I say that. When I talk about being an idiot, for example, in the first book, I talk about idiot parenting. It, that's not from a place of guilt or shame or weakness or fear or self-hate or self-disgust. When the Dalai Lama says that, he's not talking about guilt. It's coming from a place of courage and wholeness and peace and serenity and confidence. So when I talk about being a buffoon, I'm talking about it coming from a place of strength and confidence and courage and self-love, not from a place of self-disgust or self-hate or shame or guilt. All right, next question. Somebody writes, my husband and I get stuck in power struggles around how to parent our children. We seem to be stuck in an over and under parenting cycle. I've read your books and listened to your webinars and two of your children and two of our children have been to evoke. It is so hard once we listen to one another's ideas then to decide whose idea we might follow. We get stuck off in there. You know, part of what I want to say to you is, yeah. Full stop. And that's the task. I mean, it's, it's hard to, to figure yourself out for all of us, right? That, that's what I've been talking about so far tonight. But then when you have a partner, a co-parent, a spouse or a child in the family, you have to work it out in the context of them because you have competing needs, competing ideas, competing wounds. And so I guess what I just want to say to you is you, you sound like you're on the path. I shared this last week after listening to a lecture that, that Jamie Gill, my therapist, gave to all of our therapists at, at a training. She said, in essence, and I'm summarizing a days full of training, she said, it's a gentle encouragement to the client to keep going. And then offering to the client your, your presence. Which is to say, and I'll go with you if you would like. So whoever wrote this question, I would say, keep going. You're on the track. You've identified a, a proclivity for, for one of you to underfunction and overfunction. You come from complementing wounds or styles, probably. Jamie said to me years ago, after complaining lovingly about my wife, right? Where I was complaining and venting to my therapist, which by the way, is the right place to vent with your therapist. So after complaining about my wife, about something, cannot recall what it was, of course, I expressed some affection for her that I love her and that I'm happy we're married. And my therapist just gently 
just gently connected to me on that point and said, isn't it so true that falling in love or being married is learning to fall in love with somebody else's dilemma? And so that's the nugget I would give you tonight. You're on, you're, you're doing great. Keep it going. Keep working at it. It doesn't get fixed. There's no quick solution or hack. But if each of you do your work, if each of you do your work, and that's a big if, because if one of you is doing work and the other one isn't, it's very difficult for that to work out sometimes. It's possible, but it's very difficult for it to work out. But as you do your work, attend to your own wounds, focus on yourself, realize where you come up short, where you overreact, where you overcompensate, where you polarize to make up for them, all of that over and over and over on infinite item. You learn to fall in love with your partner's dilemma over and over again. One of the, the, the blessings I've had of, of spending a lot of fa uh, family time after the pandemic with my extended family, my wife's family, is to get to see her dilemma in real time. And I'm not picking on anybody. To get to see her dilemma in real time is to understand where she came from. It invites compassion. And that doesn't make all of my needs go away. Right? Then I have to take care of myself. And if I'm feeling triggered by her or reactive to her, my job is to take care of my side of the street, focus on my side of the street, regulate myself, and so on. And hopefully, she can fall in love with my dilemma over and over and over again. And that's very different than trying to fix your spouse or change them or hope they'll come to your way of thinking. But here's the great magic of it all. The more from a place of strength that you can fall in love with your partner's dilemma, the more they seem to change. Because you're offering them non-judgment and compassion and empathy and curiosity. And that is the context in which human beings change on the deepest level. But when we try to get them to change or see it our way, or point out how their dilemma is still affecting their life and our life and our children's life, and therefore you need to get your crap together, that is the context that is, makes it very, very difficult, I might even say unlikely, that someone will change. So keep going. You're doing a great job. Somebody writes, my work of being a parent began when exploring the notion of codependency and I participated in groups such as Parents Anonymous, but recently I have read and discovered what seems to be a new revisionist view that there's no such thing as codependency as a diagnosis or condition. That is, a very, that is the very nature of love and parenting to be connected. It is what heals and creates healthy relationships. Is this new evolution and, and vanguard? Is this the new evolution vanguard? Where do you see the line or right mix? Well, I, I have a really strong opinion about this. That's just not understanding codependency. First of all, the diagnosis of codependency is um, doesn't exist. They thought about, I've shared this before, there, there, there was some discussion of putting codependency in the new diagnostic manual. But the insurance company and their lobby argued against it successfully because everybody would qualify for it. Codependency is a continuum. At one end, you have a differentiated, individuated soul capable of extreme amounts of empathy and compassion and patience with others, but not being reactive to them or dependent upon them. At the other end, you have people that are reactive, violent, aggressive, needy, dependent, unaware of self. So, no, that's not the natural condition of parenting and relationships. That's just a misunderstanding of the word. That's probably somebody trying to reframe it so people don't feel bad. But see, that won't work. What works is not saying you're not codependent. That's just normal. I wrote about this in The Audacity to Be You. There's a, there's a, there's a paragraph in there. And the paragraph reads something like this. The euphemism that, that some people say that to be codependent is just loving too much is a lie. There's no such thing as loving too much. And dependence, by the way, is not codependence. Codependence is relying on somebody for your sense of self. 
that, that isn't signed up for the task, like a child. And what I explain in this paragraph is that it's not, it's not too much love. It's not enough self. So no, the, wherever you read that idea, it's, it's a complete misunderstanding of it. It's a euphemism. It's a, it's a go around and it's just somebody who's trying to create a, 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 it's somebody who's trying to tell you you're all good. And that's not the solution to feeling good. Ironically, let me be clear about that. The solution to, to, to being all good, to really being good is to realize you're imperfect. I was going to pull up something, but I can't find it really quickly. But I'll just paraphrase it. It's from Ram Dass. Maybe you can put it up there if you have it, Malia. Ram Dass said, um, most people try to counteract I am bad with I am good. In other words, they, they, when, they, when they have the feeling or the sense that I am bad, they try to double down, try to invest in I am good. And that's, that you'll never, get, you'll never work it out that way. So it doesn't work to say you're not codependent. There, there is codependency. It's an attachment style. It's an attachment wound. It's theoretical. It's just about being unhealthy and unclear about boundaries. And dependence and codependence are two entirely different things. Really what it is, is, and Ram Dass explains, is the, the, the answer to, to I am good and I am bad is not, I mean, the answer to I am bad is not I am good. The answer is I am. I am bad I am good, I am selfish, I am generous, I am beautiful, I am ugly, I am insightful, I am stupid, I am everything. And making peace with that. That's the solution. So, now codependency, although it's not a clinical diagnosis, it refers to an attachment style or an attachment wound. It refers to trauma healing. Um, it refers to boundaries and clarity and a sense of self. It refers to an ability to be connected to somebody, but not dependent or reactive to them. So it's a real thing. It's definitely a real thing. All right. Next question. Somebody writes, my adult daughter in her 30s is struggling very hard and often tries to bully us into letting her move back home and take care of her. She threatens suicide, brings up our past flaws and mistakes as reasons why she needs to move home and let us take care of her. It is so hard to hold this boundary. It's heart-wrenching to listen to. She has repeated this pattern since childhood when the tantrums were more obvious and easier to see what to do. We don't want her to physically harm herself, but it is challenging to know when to listen and hold space and when to call 911. She is asking us to pay for inpatient treatment again after many placements. We could afford it, but it is hard to know if we should pay for this again, any suggestions? Well, that last two sentences are what I want to start with. There's no should. You get to decide. And it's such an important decision and the stakes are too great for you to abdicate the, the question to somebody else's ideas or morality or ethics, right? including mine. I don't want to take that on. So there's no should. You get to do what you want to do. Let me talk about an energy, and I've shared this story recently. I shared this maybe even as, as recently as, as the other night. It's, it's the energy of saying to my daughter, who's 14, it's your life. You're going to have to figure it out. Here's what I can and I'm willing to do, but there are some things that I'm not willing to do, and I might be wrong. And, and literally, I could make a decision that she could use as an excuse to kill herself. That's a truth that I have to come to terms with. But if my peace of mind can only come by, by the guarantee that she will be okay, she's taking care of me. I'm not taking care of her. If I think I can keep my daughter alive, if I do all the right things, I am fundamentally off course, both for myself and for her and the relationship. So I'm not telling you what to do. You have to decide. You have to figure that out. You have to sort through your grief and your guilt and your shame and your insecurities. That's your task. But ultimately, the energy is 
You can't save her. Only she can save herself. And I don't know if that makes sense to you all, but the people that, that, that accept that my friend in recovery always says, said to me, he always said to me, you know, the difference between me and God is that God never thinks that he's me. You can't save anybody. You can show up authentic, courageous, honest, with integrity. You can't control outcomes. And so then you have to find a different source for making decisions. Because most of us make decisions from a place of outcomes. We try to steer life to where we think it needs to go. And so what, what's evidenced in, in your, your dynamic is that pattern has existed for, it sounds like, decades. And it's, it's terrifying and risky, literally, to get out of that pattern. So you have to decide if you're ready to get out of it. At some point, the parents that I've worked with who have children that, 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 that have threatened suicide, that, that are at risk, at some point, the parents who have worked on their recovery, their healing, get to a point where they accept that they're no longer responsible for their child living. And I will tell you, almost always the child turns out as surviving it and living. Almost, almost every time a parent has made this transition, but there's no guarantee. And I have had clients in the past who have lost their children. So I said to a client not too long ago, I said, you know, your brother might die. Your alcoholic brother, he might die. And my client said, why are you saying that to me? I said, cause it's true. And until you accept that and that you have no control over it, You'll never know what to do with him. You'll never know what to say. You'll never know when your boundaries are. But if you can accept that you're not in control of him living or dying, then you can show up. And you can, I'm using the word energetically because I want to get away from exact words and choices. And then you can energetically shift where you're not responsible for him living anymore. He is. But at the end of the day, mom and dad, everybody listening to me, everybody within the sound of my voice, you have to figure this out because you have to live with the consequences and I don't. And you can't have any expert therapist, including myself, make the decision for you. It's yours to make. And it's terrifying. And there are no guarantees. The only guarantee is that if you live your authentic life, is that you're living your life. Remember, recovery from codependency doesn't fix anybody else. It only fixes you. In Al-Anon, the three C's are we can't control it, we didn't cause it, uh, control, cause, and um, control, cause. What's the third C? Cause, control. I can't remember the third C right now. It escaped me. Somebody will write it down to me. Somebody tell Malia the third C. Cause, control. Anyway. The point is, you can't control another person. And that's accepting your humanity, accepting the limitations of who you are and turning their life back over to them. And if you have a higher power, it can really help to turn, turn it over to, to your higher power. Somebody writes, I'm in the middle. I am the middle. This will be my last question for this evening, I think. I'm so glad we had lots of questions. Somebody writes, I'm the middle child of five. Can't cure it. I was wondering if it was cured. The three C's are you can't control it, you can't cure it, you didn't cause it. Not in that order, but you get the point. I'm the middle child of five with an identical twin. I have an older brother and two younger sisters who are twins. My mother was anxious and seemed to have a negative effect on, on her, younger, her younger and older children. What kind of attachment would I have had if my sister and I kind of were just under the radar and very busy in a very busy household with an older brother getting attention uh, and younger sisters getting too much concern. My younger sister can say it was a good, it was good and we got little attention. Just curious. I seem to have an independent thinking and I'm not attached to what my mother thinks, but I wonder if I am not attached much at all as my mother was not involved in anything I did. 
it's a complicated situation. You know, we talk about attachment styles, ambivalent attachment that looks very anxious, avoidant attachment, what looks like somebody who's ready to kind of, who's ready to split at the, at the first sign of, of threat. And then there's a, 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 a complex or disorganized attachment style also. But really, and then the secure attachment. But really, I just think about secure and non-secure. You know, the, it might be that you have a more avoidant style that you learn to parent yourself. You, you became differentiated. And so maybe you worry, maybe you struggle with intimacy a little bit more. It feels threatening to you. It feels difficult for you. I, I'm not sure. I don't know from the information you've given. But, but going back to the secure attachment, the question is, is it secure or is it not? And what style do you have under stress? I tend to have a more avoidant attachment. My childhood was not about intrusion. It was about neglect. I was raised by a single mother who was overwhelmed. A father that wasn't present. And so I have a kind of a what looks more masculine, looks more avoidant kind of style. But I don't focus on not being, I don't focus on not being avoidant in my attachment. I focus on developing a secure one. If I had more anxious, my, my wife has a more anxious presentation than I do. She's more what we would call an ambivalent attachment. So we have complementary styles, complementary styles of responding to, to a, 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 a fractured attachment, a non-secure attachment from a parent because we have different backgrounds. And it can look very different stylistically, but that's just the surface. And, and, and by the way, somebody who's becoming more and more differentiated and individuated will look to people with ambivalent attachments or anxious attachments. They will look like they're avoidant, if that makes sense. You know, the reason that, that people, as they move up the scale of, of, of developing a secure attachment and, and becoming more differentiated and individuated, to those lower on the scale, they look like they look like they don't care. They look too distant, maybe robotic. They look avoidant. I, I teach parents all the time. When you start to set healthy boundaries from a, from a strong, healthy place, your child will accuse you of not caring, of not loving. Because when you were younger, when they were younger, you had a, a more fused identity with them. You were more reactive. They and you were more dependent upon each other to take care of each other. So as you grow, I mean, the minute you say no to somebody, I mean, you can think of it in the most simple example of, of somebody in a physically abusive relationship. We'll just take the, the, the cliche of a man beating a wife. If the wife gets strong enough to say, this is not, this is not okay anymore, I want a divorce and I'm not negotiating and I'm walking away, the husband will accuse her of all kinds of horrible things. So with attachment, you know it when you know it. I love what Harriet Lerner says in The Dance of Intimacy, I believe it is, in, in her book. I talk about the dance of anger all the time, but in The Dance of Intimacy, she says, when you come to the point where you, you've decided that you want a divorce, you, there's no negotiating. You're not held captive by the change back messages. You say to your partner, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. And no matter what they say to you, you've worked it out when you're ready, when you're ready. And they will accuse you of all the things that used to hook you. Mom and dad, your children will accuse you of not caring. Of anything that will work. So I, it's a complex question that you're describing, but I, I would just look at finding that secure attachment. So thank you. All right, folks, like I said, we opened up the new Conscious Parenting Workshop. That'll be February 24th. It will fill up. The first two filled up in days, and we had a waiting list left over already. So if you're interested, contact intensives at evoketherapy.com. My two books, The Journey of the Heroic Parent and The Audacity to Be You, are available on Amazon and Audible. We have intensives. If you want to do a deep dive, if you want to look at and get a real close-up glimpse and look, at your attachment wounding and your attachment healing that, that needs to happen, Finding You is the best place that I know to do it. December 7th through 11th is our next offering. 
We also have an online offering. November 11th is the next one. That's tomorrow. Or January 27th through 29th in 2022. 23, excuse me. For a private family or couples intensives, you can contact intensives at evoketherapy.com. For any information, just contact that email address. We have support groups for wilderness families and alumni. Our next offering is November 17th. We have one meeting a month just for alumni of our wilderness program. November 22nd is that next offering. And then we have an intensive support group once a month. That's December 13th. These are all virtual. For more information or to sign up, contact Malia at evoketherapy.com. If you want a, an attachment-based coach who can work with you virtually, independently, parent coaching, couples coaching, contact coaching at evoketherapy.com. These are folks that are that are not just instructed in attachment styles like I talked about, but in the method about what it looks like to heal and to repair attachment. That's a very different thing that, that, that a lot of people aren't trained in. We have pursuits trips for young adults and families. Think therapy light or sober fun. Customized trips all over the world, anywhere from three to 30 days. You can also have a therapist to be a part of that. We have 12-step support. We ask all current parents to attend six 12-step support groups. Any combination of Al-Anon, CODA.org, FamiliesAnonymous.org, or AdultChildren.org. These are all free. You can do them virtually online, so there's no excuse not to go. RefugeRecovery.org or NAMI.org also has services in your local area. All of these broadcasts are available on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. Just search Finding You in Evoke Therapy Podcast or go to SoundCloud.com on your computer and search for it there. You can also find us on Evoke's YouTube channel where you can watch the video presentation along with the slides that I use. You can find Evoke Therapy Programs and me, Dr. Brad Reedy, on Twitter and Instagram using the handles at Evoke Therapy and at Dr. Brad Reedy, respectively. You can also find Evoke Intensives on Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy Intensives. On Facebook, you can find us by searching either Evoke Therapy Programs or Evoke Therapy Intensives. And then we also have a blog with new content each week that is curated by Malia. She does a wonderful job. Our newest one is from my very oldest and dearest friend, Steve Kirk, writing about how you're not off track. So go to the Evoke website there and check it out. If you're in a place in life where you want to give back to people that can't afford treatment or therapy, our three charitable partners that we work with are ChooseMentalHealth.org, SkiesTheLimitFund.org, or EvokeFamilyFoundation.org. All right, folks, my next broadcast will be November 17th. That's next week at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. I'm going to be going into young adult work. We've relaunched our young adult program, so I'm going to be talking about that and about how we've retooled the entire thing. So tune, tune in there if you want to talk about young adults and our new programming. As I like to say at the end, thank you for joining me. I hope this is a helpful point of contact. And for and on behalf of the people that you love and the people that love you, thanks for showing up and being willing to do your work. It makes all the difference in the world. Have a great evening. I'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.